Hello, and welcome to Think Like a Game Designer. I'm your host, Justin Gary. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with brilliant game designers from across the industry with a goal of finding universal principles that anyone can apply in their creative life. You can find episodes and more at thinklikeagamedesigner.com. In today's episode, I speak with Casey Yano. Casey is probably best known as the co-founder of Megacrit Studios and co-creator of the mega hit Slay the Spire, which I have played many hundreds of hours of. We really dive deep into the entire process of not only creating Slay the Spire, but the detail levels of how to think about UI UX and the importance of the new user experience, why designing from a QA first perspective is more powerful than the more classic designer and design document approach. We talk about the Apple principle and having your games look good and what allows you to move from a alpha version to an early access to a live launch. We talk about the importance of having your game be streamable and the systems that help make your game more likely to spread organically. We talk about marketing and launching a game as an indie developer, and we talk about the disastrous launch of Slay the Spire and how they turned around and what systems worked and what didn't. We go into a lot of very granular detail about the process for making games, what build reviews look like, how iteration works, how you think about metrics, how every piece of the puzzle works from designing and co-creating and collaborating and the getting things out to launch. It's really awesome. I mean, you know, if you have any interest in making digital games at all, you will find a ton of value in here. There's a lot of great principles. We even talk about what it's like to apply those design principles to a company and the details of how they work for communicating via Discord and documentation and hours. It's a really fascinating deep dive into a lot of granular, useful things from people who have been through it. And it's really been a great joy to get to hear how my games helped to inspire Casey and Anthony when they were creating Slay the Spire. And I talk about how Slay the Spire has inspired me and the creation of our campaign and algorithmically generated game mode for Soulforge Fusion that's going to be coming out soon. So it's a really great conversation between designers who are continuing to have a conversation in public via the work that we do from designs and really breaking it out. This is exactly the kinds of conversations I love to have the most. I learned a ton. I was frantically scribbling notes throughout the entire thing. So grab a pen and paper, get ready and enjoy my conversation with Casey Yano. Hello and welcome. I am here with Casey Yano. Uh, Casey, thanks so much for joining me. I'm super excited to dig deep into your background. Um, this is, uh, we have, I think we're gonna have a lot of exciting things to talk about. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm actually, <laughs> I'm actually a huge fan as well. This is kind of a meeting a celebrity moment for me, actually. <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, this is super fun. It's one of the things that I love to do is like the kinds of conversations that, you know, I mean, we just met here, but I think the kinds of conversations we already kind of had a little bit of a precursor of it before we started recording um, are the things I just love to do. And it would typically only happen at like GDC or at like conventions where I would just, you know, we'd get to hang out and have a conversation and nobody else gets to listen to it. Um, and so getting to wow. have these conversations where people who are like would have where maybe you and I were 20 years ago or would love to have listened to conversations like this, um, that's sort of the purpose of the podcast. So, um, uh, and, and the, the reference to 20 years ago, I think is a good, a good starting point because I'd love to talk about, um, you know, before, um, you know, your, before Megacrit games, before a lot of the, the huge successes and, and I'll have given people some precursor to this before they, they listen to this part of the podcast on, on all the things you've done, but, uh, how did you get started? Um, what was kind of the, the origin story for you bringing, getting into this industry? 
want to be? I don't know. That's a, and that's actually a, maybe too complex of a question. We'll start a little bit later. Um, but as a, I just had a job during college as a game tester. My brother got a job as a game tester. And, you know, I was like, it would be nice to have some pocket change. So, you know, can you, can you get me like into like this play testing thing? And my brother was like, sure. Um, and they immediately gave me the job. It was because um, I'm bilingual. So I speak English and Japanese. And so I got a localization, um, localization test kind of job at uh, a contracting company for Microsoft. So that's kind of like, I wouldn't say that it was the very first foray into video games. Like I was always just like, kind of like your typical like nerd, just like playing games, playing board games, played magic, Pokemon cards, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that was kind of like my first hand experience with um, the industry. So I don't know, yeah. if, that's, I don't know if that's good enough yeah. in terms of like no, no. the start. But. Well, it's super helpful too, Rick, because I always like to look at like where the universal principles are. Um, and, and one of them there is you have the skills that you happen to have and you happen to be good at that you can leverage those to get to the industries that you maybe want to get into, right? In this case, whether you knew you wanted to get into it or not, right? So this idea that you were bilingual, a lot of people wouldn't think of that as an entry point into video games, but it was an opportunity. And so I found for a lot of people, the success of like, I'm particularly good at whatever, you know, writing or math or, you know, talking to people or whatever, like each one of those skills can be incredibly cross cross promotional. And I know you have some, you know, illustrative skills or really enjoy sort of drawing and sketching. And, you know, there's a lot of overlap, um, I think there. And then the other piece of it that maybe will come out as more of the story goes on is this idea that, um, you know, you just have to start doing the things, right? And you don't really know what you're going to love until you actually start doing it. And so getting into the industry very true, very true. is very different. Like it's one thing to say, I love playing games. Like, cool. Everybody loves <laughs> yeah. playing games. <laughs> right? but a million, billion other people. <laughs> right, exactly. But it's not the same as like making games or doing QA or, you know, working on different aspects. It's like the, the day-to-day of that may not be something that you love. And there's no way to know in my experience until other than just, you know, trying it and, and taking the time. Um, and I'll, 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 I may have a tangent for you after this uh, because I'm in Tokyo right now as we're uh, as we're having this conversation, and uh, I'm enjoying, uh, uh, loving it here. And uh, a few, I've learned a few key uh, Japanese words that help me out here. So maybe you'll be able to teach me some other useful ones for while I'm uh, <laughs> while I'm adventuring. Uh, but um, okay, so you you got this um, job, uh, and this was cute. You were doing um, translations, and uh, what what kind of how did you go from there into okay, actually, you know, I actually really like this. I actually want to make games. I see, I see, I see. Um, let's see. So I was, um, this was around college, and I was pursuing a degree for architecture. So I, I wanted to be, I wanted to be an artist, but I didn't get like the scholarships for it. My parents kind of disapproved that. Um, so I was like, hmm, what else could I do that's like creative and like would make me money potentially? Um, and I was like, I really want to do industrial design. That was like my first choice. Um, but I was like, who would hire anybody in industrial design? I was just from like, I was like pretending to be like somebody hiring somebody. And I was like, why would some like random college student have good ideas? <laughs> um, but then I was like, how about architecture? And I was like, oh, they need a lot of grunts. So they just, <laughs> so they just be working with like CAD and like drawing stuff all day. And it's just a lot of like tedium work. Um, and actually really like tedious work. I just like doing things that are just, just like concrete tasks, knowing that it takes like a hundred hours to do something. Like I'm a big fan of just chipping away at something. So 
Um, I, what was the question? No, no. I want to. I'm gonna actually. I want to linger there. I'm actually glad you paused because I was gonna. Inter- I was gonna interrupt you anyway. Um, because okay. I that the, again, this is like I'm looking for these universal principles and these things. Like that instinct to be able to sort of take a task that maybe is daunting, maybe is boring, but that just takes like that you can just kind of chip away at it. You know, in some sense, we learn this as gamers. You know, playing RPGs and you know playing these games where you're grinding. Right, right. You know, and and I I did. I kind of learned to love the grind, and that it's like a superpower in a lot of ways, right? People will just shy away from those things. I, and I'll let you go a couple different directions with this. Either, you know, where do you think that came from for you? Or how do you think mm-hmm. people can cultivate that? Or, you know, what is it, you know, how do you do you look for that when you're hiring people? Like, where does that love of the grind, like, show up? And how can people, how can people find it in themselves or in others? Interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I would definitely say it's probably a personal thing. Um, I just really like, wrote tasks. Um, it might just be because I have a really hard time focusing in general. I very likely have uh, something similar to ADHD. I got did like an evaluation, but it wasn't like a very, very, very in-depth one. It was just like, maybe you should like get this like much more checked out. Um, and I, I didn't go any further, but I was like, whatever. So, but I guess doing things that I'm familiar with frequently and all the time is just kind of like just something that I just do i guess yeah. um, i always wake up i always just make coffee the exact same way i do things in a very specific order um and it's just like and if i don't get a certain amount of work done every single day just something just feels wrong um to the point that to me that's like that's like my happy place is like just doing the same things and then i actually consider don't tell my wife um but I actually consider going on vacation to be like the real work <laughs> to like try to like try to like be more human try to like partake in the human experience i'm like okay i have to do this like this is like my job is to like go out and like see different things experience new things so i don't just become like this strange hermit that has no information of the universe besides just what's on the internet which i think would be a very bad thing to do um but we won't go into that so <laughs> yeah no yeah it's fascinating i think that the um uh, finding that that balance of routine and habit and formula of like, you know, I'm doing the thing and I'm comfortable in this space versus pushing outside of your comfort zone, right? Whether whatever, you, you know, mm-hmm. you happen to be, you know, you're, maybe your comfort zone outside your comfort zone is a vacation, maybe for somebody else, it is digging into a CAD file or digging into, you know, working through learning a new programming language or whatever it is, right? That there's this balance that you have to strike. And it's a it's, 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 I think it's insightful that you recognize that about yourself and push past it. Cause a lot of people don't push past that boundary. Like, eh, you know what? I'm good at this. I can do this. I'm going to avoid, you know, whatever it is that's uncomfortable. You know, I think that's going to be unique to everybody's personality. So, um, yeah, I think that's really fascinating. Um, okay. So let's, let's, let's jump back into the, into the story here. Um, so, you know, you've, I, I know you did, you, you ended up doing quality assurance at, at Amazon for quite a while as you're working on games or, or how does this, how does this uh. work? And, 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 and I'll, and I'll give another angle too, so we can go narrative style and I'll give you another hook if you want, which is as I think there might be some people listening that hear this. Okay. I do the same thing every day. I make my coffee the same way every day. I live in this box and, but you're very creative and you're able to create these really innovative things. A lot of people see that as a dichotomy. So either you can talk about why, this can be supportive to your creative process or just kind of continue the narrative <laughs> of how you get there. I see. Um, how I get there. That's very interesting. I think um, for my assumption <laughs> is that all designers tend to just play a lot of games. Um, 
And then some of those things just don't feel right. It's just like, I've been playing um, a lot of rogue lights back in the day. I was like obsessed with rogue lights. So we had to break down kind of like the two design rules of Slay the Spire. Um, we would say that Anthony is kind of like the card game person. So, so for reference, Mega Crit is owned uh, by two people, um, myself and Anthony. Um, Anthony's like the, the board game card game guy. Like he's like super into magic. He used to run a community site for Netrunner. Um, and I'm like, I just do, I just do a lot of video game stuff. I actually don't play much card games except when I was like very, very young. Um, to this day, I don't actually play that many card games. A running joke in the company is that I hate card games. Um, but I don't hate them. I just like saying it because it makes Anthony upset. And then, uh, <laughs> okay. I, I feel like I so, want to do a part two with Anthony and get his perspective on this when we're done. That's totally fine. It's going to be, it's going to be a very different, uh, interview. We have a very good cop, bad cop relationship sometimes. Um, wait, which one are you? <laughs> <laughs> depends on, depends on the subject. If okay. it comes to, uh, if it comes to UI, I'm always the, probably the bad cop. I, uh, bit of a control freak when it comes to like how I want buttons to be like how the size like what happens when you hover over them how they change when you click on them um just like how they appear on screen like the slight delay before they appear um all that kind of stuff like how how obvious it is to see them on the screen versus how like unimportant it might look like those are all very very important things um so I'm so I spend a lot of my time thinking about like how to present information that the player has versus um, I think it more in like a traditional card game, you kind of have like a smooth pacing just because you have to draw the cards. But like, if you imagine Slay the Spire, it's like your turn and the cards just appear without any information, no animation is just there. And it would feel, it would feel weird. It would feel like those don't feel like cards anymore. It would just feel like buttons that just, it'd be like a website. Um, and I think I really want to make sure that flow state and even the sound that accompanies it, like, and when it goes away, they all like kind of like fly out and then they like coalesce into the deck. And then when they appear, like that kind of relationship to me is like super, super important. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you've got, you've got three major topics I want to dig into. We'll, let's, let's start with the last one here. That says, this is UI mm-hmm. UX specifically, because this is something that is, easily overlooked but is so critical right and so you've described this okay i'm tr- we're we're using the conceit that these are cards and that's going to give you a lot of um, background and assumptions as a player right i expect certain things to happen and so you're building this ui ux to, to both reinforce that conceit that these are cards right they're not really cards they're just we're playing like they're cards and and right. and so and then we're also using that um and, and and then that gives you a lot of leeway of okay people understand how that happens right and 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 as you mentioned i think before we started this call uh before we started recording this idea that there's a there's a conversation going on between game designers and between games over time and so you're taking the principle of a deck building game and you're using that conversation chunk that unit that already exists and now building Mm -hmm. into this okay we're gonna take the roguelite we're gonna take this you know this deck building system and we're gonna bring them together what about ui ux um how do you is it just instinct that brings you to these things like what are are there principles that you use when you're saying okay how do i when i'm the bad cop here and i'm really looking for something very specific what makes (laughs) you so sure that you're that you're right or that what are the things that you're looking for that tell you yes this is this is this is on the right track hmm that is a very hard question to answer 
but Dude, I if agree. you could answer it, if you could answer it easily, then I would be surprised. I, I mean, I wrestle with this. <laughs> I wrestle with this stuff all the time. So, so I, I see. I, see. I understand the struggle. I'm, I'm, I'm encouraging the struggle. I would say that um, there were two key points in my life where I was like, ah, like UI and UX matter. Um, and so I said I was doing localization testing uh, when I used to work at um, Bolt, which was a contracting company for Microsoft. But what happened when I was working there was when there was when there was no work for me as a localization tester, they would just put me on different types of testing. Um, and one of that was certification testing. And when you're doing certification testing, they always have these rules. And I was always like, what are the point of these rules? Like video games are creative. You can just express yourself however you want. So why is Microsoft pushing for this stuff? Um, but one of the tests that we did was the text had to be legible on this really crappy TV that they just had in the lab. And it was like, it was like a 14 inch CRT. And then the lowest minimum rendering, this was for Xbox 360 era, um, was like 720i. And so if your text wasn't legible in 720i, then it was like, then you just failed that test. And there were, of course, some companies that they had enough pull that they could just ignore it, like EA. Um, but I was just kind of thinking more and more about why these rules exist, why these certification tests existed. And then over time, I just became more and more just like sensitive to like why it would pass here. But I would look at a website and be like, this text is really small. Like if these kinds of tests existed then they wouldn't, then it wouldn't pass. Like, this is not like, I was like, this is not right. <laughs> I'm not, I don't want to be a gatekeeper, but I was just, you know, I was just like, there are people out there who just won't be able to read this. Um, on top of this, uh, when I, when I got a job at Amazon, there was, um, it's actually one of my professors, which is very strange to have to work with your professor. So I used to work in higher education at Amazon, but just happened to land in the same place at the same time. But he actually um, had like, couldn't see vision very well. So I noticed this immediately when I walked by his desk once, um, uh, his screen looked completely different. It was like, like all the text was humongous. It was like high contrast mode. Um, and he would very frequently when asking questions about like, I was like, Oh, what do you think about this current thing? And this QA, like, I think this is too big or whatever. Or we were looking at someone else's screen. We would find, um, we'd find this person just like hard squinting at the screen the whole time. And it's just really, and I was like, oh, like, would this person be able to play my video games? Um, and so it just got me thinking a lot about accessibility to the point that I was <laughs> helping out on the accessibility team at Amazon. Um, and so we just kind of figured out, like, what makes games more playable or less playable to people? What makes, what makes text easier to read? How do we know which buttons to click? How do we know it's hovered? Um, so it wasn't something that I just had like innately, but now that I've been exposed to it, like I just can't unsee it. Like I just, I just know that Peter, this person name was Peter, <laughs> Peter would not be able to read certain texts in a certain video game. Um, and I would be like, like, that's not right. Like it's just, it's just one person just literally just hundred percent cannot play your game ever. Like that's what I see sometimes. Yeah. Um, so I apply that principle to just like everything, I guess. So 
Yeah, I'd love to get some more because there's, there's there's this pure accessibility uh, point, which I, I totally hear, right? If it's not, you know, readable, if people can't, you know, there's a, if people are colorblind and you can't, they can't see the different colors of your thing, right? That, 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 that's, you you class certain people out of your game entirely. And then there's, 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 there's deeper levels to it too, right? Where it's like, okay, someone could play this, but they wouldn't mm -hmm. enjoy it or they wouldn't naturally be pulled towards, so pulled towards the thing that, that you want them to do, right? So I, the way I look at it, um, the, you know, UI, good UI UX should be, you know, it should be obvious what the player can do. It should be, mm -hmm. uh, generally easy to figure out what they want to do and they should enjoy interacting with the system, right? Those are kinds of the principles mm -hmm. that I use when I'm working on this sort of thing. Um, you know, are there principles like that for you or, or alternatively more specific examples that come to mind where it's like, okay, this is something that was not intuitive or not effective. And then this shifted it and you know this kind of you know again i'll try to pull the principles out as well as we go i see i see hmm i don't i don't think of things too much in principles we just mm. we generally just have lots of like long ranting conversations when something feels off if that makes sense yeah um, yeah walk me through maybe walk me through one of those conversations or a, something that comes to mind where you're like okay this was a this is a debate we had and this is where we ended up and this is why it was right or wrong or something you know it's just something where you 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 could tell a tell a story instead of going for a principle Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um there's a button that we spent like several days on in Slay the Spire, and I don't think it's perfect to this day. And it's the end turn button. <laughs> it represents like six different states and it's like disabled sometimes. It has a different colored highlight. The text color is different. The text size is different based on the localization, so that's a problem. Um and it just has to pop out from the background. So if we were going through a checklist, you know, it would be like contrast legibility, you know, giving state data information, stuff like that. But I would say I'm just kind of like obsessed with things feeling good and feeling just like pleasant to use. Like, um, like if you worked in like woodworking and if you have like a bad chisel, like, you know, it's a bad chisel. You like use it just a little bit and you're like, this is like blunt. The handle is like slippery. Uh, it's like it's like the metal is like loose from the handle, um, and I just hate it when those cracks are visible when you're making UX. It's like the button just appears instead of like flying in. Like the lerp is like linear versus like exponential or quadratic or it bounces in. Um, and there's just a way to make things feel a little bit more weighty or a little bit smoother. Um, and when those don't align, I'm like when those don't align properly in a video game, I'm like hypersensitive to that. Um, so we don't have a principle, but if it's wrong, we will be like, oh, that's, that's just, that's just very wrong. That, that's great. And then just cause some people may not be familiar with the term lerp. Um, so maybe just explain that briefly. And then oh. also I would yeah, go ahead and start there and I'll ask my next question. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, lerp, uh, is just a shorthand term for linear interpolation. So it's just a way to animate something from point A to point B. It can be the size of something point A to point B. It can be a position like you're moving object from point A to point B. But if it's like lerped, it would be like, like slow. It can be like in and out lerp, it'd be like slow, fast, slow. It can do a bounce back, which is like like that. So those kind of like fun things, you don't need to animate them. You can just, you can just use math to just make things look nice, even with a static image. Yeah. Um, and because I'm not an animator, <laughs> uh, we use, we use lerps like crazy. Like it is just, and it would make your game feel very professional very quickly. I think. Yeah. 
and so and so now what i've heard then is that you've uh, thanks for the explanation and i love that you know you did you, you know we some we're, we're doing video here most people don't get this audio but your sound effects were perfect Oops. so i think people every no i think everybody's gonna get it your sound effects were great so the um uh uh the next piece is are you you've you've talked about how you've trained your kind of instincts for it and it's obvious when it's wrong you gave a great like visceral example of like a you know kind of a wood chiseling and like when it just doesn't feel right um do you may mostly just make that an internal assessment do you do external testing or user testing or anything you know how do you get feedback from others and how does that inform your process whoa <laughs> feedback that's a it's a very loaded question um, it is <laughs> it is fortunate for for us I think for video game developers, it's very fortunate that we can just iterate uh, very quickly. Um, I think we've talked about it in a few different formats, but we had an internal playtesting server for more than a year um, when we were working on Slay the Spire. But we also still do uh, build reviews every single week. Um, now that our company is quite a bit larger, I think we have uh, Anthony and I, and then we have six full-time employees. So it's about eight people. Um, we do build reviews once a week. And so whenever we feel that something is wrong, um, we also sometimes have like a little mini discussion of why we think it feels wrong. It's like, oh, maybe this button isn't big enough. Or like, maybe this like this animation is a little off. Um, so I guess that's kind of the process. We play test a lot. Um, I'm not sure how much you're supposed to, but, you know, a build review that's about an hour, hour and a half long once a week and then internal playtests we just it's just ongoing it's never ending it's a discord server and then we push out new builds each week um, our current project was in internal playtesting for about eight or so months um, we're currently <laughs> porting the game to a different engine um, but once that's complete we'll be back on we'll be back on the uh, iteration and playtesting train i guess yeah, I'd, I read about that, uh, uh, but I think I'll, uh, I'll I'll save that uh, that issue for later. Uh, the um, uh, what does what does a build review look like for you? Ah, I see. We kind of do a roulette to make a random person play the game, and then <laughs> and you know you know they they play the game, and then you can get you can get into the game, and we're just kind of having a discussion, and we record the whole thing from start to finish, and we're just jotting down notes. Um, pretty much the whole time. Sometimes we just make tickets. Actually, I don't think we'd make tickets there, but um, we just note things that would become tickets. And then at the end, after it's one and done, um, it's usually my job <laughs> to have to go through all the feedback, clean up the feedback, and then make tickets out of them. Um, and I used to do QA, so it comes very naturally to use like clean keywords, what the expectation was, yada, yada, yada. Um, and then because I'm, I'm like, and like the big like design and UI role. I could also just be like, this is probably the fix that we're looking for if it's des you know design based. Otherwise they're just bugs. So Okay. And then and so though so I'm gonna dig in here because honestly I think this your QA experience and the detail level here is actually a, kind of a superpower. And I I, I I think it's a a lot of people will learn from it. So so it, there's a it's a 90 minute ish process. Somebody's gonna play through a game or um and then they is it, and there's a discussion going on at the same time. Is it the random person, the roulette person you select is someone from in the company, some external play tester? Are they familiar with the game already? Is it a change? Ah, the builder view is always somebody within the company. So, so there's a difference between 
someone external, which is the always play test, and then the builder view, which is like, so I think what we're trying to get out of builder views versus um, the internal play test server is that, you know, it's like, it's like, we're just trying to get everything exactly how we want it, but we still have feedback <laughs> for our own, for our own game. And it's just, it's just never ending. It's, it's kind of crazy because I feel like we are just making exactly what we want to, but then right. in action, just because it happens to be a procedurally generated game, we just have so much things to say all the time. Um, and then the task list is just insane. It's just super long all the time. It's between 20 and 100 like things every single week. And we're not trying to make the number of tasks zero. Um, it, it's just a game of prioritization because it's, it's, just, it's just impossible. Right, right. So, so you're taking these, and and then so in this this ninety minute window, I mean, a great insight. I just want to underscore, right? You're never going to be done. There's no such thing as done. There's just you know no such thing. next next priority thing, and then at some point you have to push it out there. <laughs> um, but um, what uh, it, when you're uh, one person's testing and you're having discussion, so it's everybody in the same kind of virtual room having a conversation while the one person is playing, and they can hear it, and you're just, they're talking aloud, and you're all you're all just talking them as you go through the game. That's right. Correct. Yeah. And then you've mentioned, you know, turning things into tickets, which some people will know, some people won't, but that's basically you take that, compress the notes, turn them into kind of tasks and in, in a, in a, some task manager thing, like a Jira or something like that, that then says, okay, mm -hmm. here's the things we're going to do. And then you prioritize them. And then are you in charge of prioritization? Somebody else in charge of prioritization? How do you decide what um, the most important thing is? Good question. Our current method is, um, we do sprint planning. I know, I know we're, we are, we are indie. But we still we still do sprint planning uh, every two weeks, and that's when we kind of collectively. Generally, we have a we have two different sprints: one for um, art related tasks and one for programming related tasks. And so, but during that time, we put all the tasks in the backlog, and then that's when we kind of like collectively prioritize what's important. Generally, it's Anthony and I doing a prioritization, and then um, we no longer use um, what's called sizes, which is like how large or how difficult it is to fix something we just don't care <laughs> we mostly just think about what just needs to be done um and we don't really think about like oh like we have to get this much done in a week we don't really care about that kind of stuff we just trust that everybody is doing their best i guess yeah yeah so this is this is great so and again i'm just going to clarify some terms for people that are that aren't as familiar with right so a sprint is this kind of agile development methodology that is you know you generally try to like Break, break up about two weeks of work uh, that you're going to try to scope out at a given time because it's really hard to predict beyond that. And so you kind of have some more concrete things, right? And then um, I, this idea of trying to predict sizes is another thing that's, you know, in the weeds, but I found also to be a huge challenge, right? Originally, I tried to do the exact same thing. It's like, okay, this is a big task. This is a, you know, five point story. It's a three point <laughs> story. This is a two. And it was always bullshit. I mean, it was just never actually it's, the it's, real thing. It's, who knows what's going to happen? Right. And so, and so it really ties into the, the importance, and this is going to shift to one of the other topics I wanted to talk about, which is collaboration. Um, one, well, you know, starting with the, you know, how you and Anthony started working together, what it's like to collaborate, you know, in this kind of 50-50 sort of environment. And then two, how do you, when you bring other people on, you said you've got six full time now, in addition to the two of you, um, you know, your system, and I believe this is the right system, but, you know, is, it requires a lot of trust, right? People are going to work on their own. You're not sort of checking up on them in the same sort of way. There's not like a, you know, you have to check in X 
story points worth of stuff every week. Um, and so <laughs> what was it that made you, uh, made your working relationship with Anthony work and how did you guys get connected? And then kind of how did you decide when you started hiring people and managing people? So a I lot see, there, so you can pick any piece you want to go in. And I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> uh, steer we'll, we'll start from the beginning just because I don't want to say that the current project is going well or not because we just haven't, we just haven't shipped yet. So I think people would rather know about something that has already worked. Um, at least that's what I would be interested in. So, but Anthony and I went to college together. We just happened to end up in the same uh, college and we just had very similar taste in terms of like video games, uh, our thoughts on video games. Um, and we wanted to make a video game. That's a strange thing. And so Anthony was pursuing computer science and I was pursuing architecture and I was doing a game testing job and I was like, I can do, I can draw stuff and I like games. So I'll do the art. Um, so back in the day, you know, Anthony did the programming um, and I did the art stuff and design was kind of like, we're just, you know, we're just, this is what games are like. Right. And that's, that's kind of how you learn. I think as, as a game designer, <laughs> eventually is that uh, if you don't design something, you're not going to get something very good. Um, so, but fast forward many, 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 many years later, um, when we were working on Slay the Spire, um, our working relationship is quite different now. Um, Anthony was much more interested in design when we kind of like reconvened, I suppose, because the first game we made was like um, 15 years ago or so. And then we started working on Slay the Spire about seven or eight years ago. So that's like a seven or eight year gap. Like that's a, that's a huge chunk of time. <laughs> um, and we were very different people. I worked at, you know, Amazon for four or five years. Anthony also worked at like another large company for a few years. We were both in QA, which is very interesting. Um, so we're very QA forward and we just wanted to make games. And I guess the collaboration style, <laughs> go back to that a little bit. Um, yeah. And, and also I'd love to tag, tag in, you know, if you're collaborating in your QA forward, you know, define QA forward a little bit more too, as you're, as you're talking about how you're collaborating, because that seems like an important piece of the puzzle. That's a good point. I would say if you are a QA forward company, um, the main difference from what I see or what I saw at a big tech company, which is very, um, software developer focused, is kind of like the developers make the thing and the QAs just have to find the little problems that are there. Um, but what I saw was as a QA, all I saw were big problems <laughs> and bad prioritization and people were saying this is good enough or like maybe the QAs were not good at writing what they truly felt about a problem because if it's too long, they'll just stop reading it and they just start working on just getting check marks. But QA is kind of like saying like you finished a task and you did it in a way that is like perfect for the person who's going to use it. It's not about making the thing that you designed. It's about making the thing that people expect from the design. And that's a very big difference. Um, and so when we say QA forward, I mean, like, we always think about the game from the most perfect form. And we just try to get there <laughs> instead of trying to just make stuff. We're not trying to just be like, the screen opens, you can see the cards, you can select the cards. Um, it's more like, what do people expect? When a screen opens, what do people expect when they play cards? How do they feel the game is balanced? How much how much content there is? Um, and we just everything is just backwards. We work we work from the end goal, 
instead of from a design document. I think design documents, if you can follow a design document from start to finish, that would be that would be crazy. You must be the greatest planner of all time. That's how I feel. Like that's incredible. Um, we are nothing like that. Um, our design document is like bones. It's it is very sparse. Um, very few cards. None of the cards survived. Not even close. None of the initial numbers are correct. Uh, if we if we follow that to a T and release the game, it would have been finished much much sooner. But it would have <laughs> been it would have been just another just another game. Um, that had some cool ideas. And there are a ton of little games with cool ideas. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I think some of them need to spend a little bit more time in the QA churn. Yeah. Okay, great. I love this. Um, and then uh, uh, I wanted to uh, circle back to one other thing that you had said. Um, and it was kind of a little throwaway comment, but I wanted to make sure to dig into it, which is that you, <laughs> okay. know, you see, well, you play a lot of games and you see what is broken in games and that is what informs your designs. And I want to talk a little bit about how you, uh, you know, maybe give some, some more specifics to that. Cause I actually think this is a really important point that I didn't want it to get buried, but I was too excited about other things at the time. So <laughs> maybe let's talk a little bit about that. <laughs> I see. I think the word broken was a little harsh. I'm not going to lie. Um, but there's just like sometimes you just get a feeling when you are playing a game, um, and I get pretty addicted to games, even if I don't like them. Um, and whenever I realize that my addiction is taking over and why I'm unhappy, I kind of think about why I'm unhappy and what I would have done differently. Um, and that happens quite often. And some people are pretty. Um, I think people are good at sensing when something is not fun or worth their time when they play a video game. But generally, maybe not spending enough time thinking about what would be a good solution to that. Um, what is a good example? I would be playing like a roguelite game. So I was really obsessed with roguelites. Lights, the T1. Don't, 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 don't bring me up on roguelite conversations. I don't play much roguelikes. Um, that's not maybe maybe not maybe bad. this I is just, I've, I've, i have talked about this in another podcast but i i want to just to clarify the difference between lo- rogue light and roguelike uh, <laughs> for people that are uh wanting to understand that yeah so so i was into rogue lights i played like a ton of them when they were when i was just like playing games around that time that anthony and i like kind of like started working together again um and one of the things that i felt was like broken was that it would be like an action roguelite. That's like a very common and popular one at the time, like Rogue Legacy, um, Spelunky. Uh, there was really strangely named one like Vagante or something, um, but played a lot. And a problem was we, I would just accidentally beat the game <laughs> like the, <laughs> on like the first or second try. And I was like, uh, like what's like, what am I looking forward to now? Um, and then, of course, I think the Binding of Isaac, of course, is like the, the biggest uh, action rogue light. Um, and what was a big deal to me was that it would just keep unlocking more content. It was like, oh, you beat the boss? Like, next time there might be another boss. But there was like a design thing where I was like, I wasn't sure if there was new content or not. And each run takes a pretty long amount of, it just takes a significant amount of time to play a run sometimes. Um, so I felt that there should be a way to communicate that, and why not just why not just keep incrementing? That's what I, that's what I thought. I was like, I just, 
just you know what's the like how far am i into the game like i can't tell my friends they just be spoilers so what if i just give them a number and that was like um what i thought anthony was thinking too <laughs> which is pretty funny um because when we released slay on our roadmap it was like we're bringing in an endless mode and for some reason anthony and i never had a conversation but i assumed that's what anthony was thinking of but what Anthony was thinking of was taking one run and going like looping or whatever, which was funny because um, at that stage when we started working on it, I knew that your deck was kind of complete around like the end of Act Two in the game, and I was like, "This is not going to be fun." And then Anthony was like, "But that's what we promised," and I was like, mm, "We can put it in, but I want it to be like a footnote." Um, so we do have a endless mode. Um, but it's in the uh, it's like one modifier in our custom game mode, and <laughs> what I thought we were going to do was something similar to uh, what's current, what's now called the ascension system, which is where you have higher and higher difficulties. And so I was very happy to be like, "Well, this is what I wanted, so I got it." And then I just made it, and I was like, "Endless mode, here you go, Anthony." And he was like, "This is not endless mode." <laughs> so and I was like, "Ah, oh, it's fine. This is what I wanted." So. That's a great, but that was, that was my like (laughs) kind of like idea of like fixing something that was a little nebulous um, because I wasn't very like narratively confident at the time. um, And I just made too many strange characters to like add on more content. I was like, you're already beating pretty scary things. I don't know what, I don't know what I would change. So I would, uh, I was like, why not just make the numbers higher? Cause I just want games to be harder and harder personally. Right. Um, the initial version of Ascension mode was incrementally making certain things harder uh, forever. So it would have been Ascension like infinity, like it would just go forever and forever. But um, but and then Anthony made a point that whenever you change things, you shouldn't change things too small. Otherwise, it doesn't feel very impactful because he's um very sensitive about kind of like step uh, increments. Like when games incrementally improve things too small, like 1% improved attack speed just feels like nothing. Um, and it just doesn't feel meaningful. And I was like, you have a point. And so we combine forces to make uh, what is our current Ascension system, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 a very powerful thing. And and, and it, it ties into this this challenge of difficulty levels overall, right? You want something where if the challenge is too low, you're over it you've i beat it i don't need this anymore and if the challenge mm-hmm. is too high a lot of people you're going to lose them right they're just like i don't even know what's happening here i can't i can't do this. so ascension yes. levels felt like a very clean way to say okay look i'm going to give you a challenge but it's everybody can eventually overcome this or you know m- vast majority of the audience can anyway and then i'm going to allow you to opt in to these higher and higher level challenges and keep giving you these options to keep it interesting and engaging mm-hmm. yep and also named it after my favorite card game. Yeah, by the way. There. By the way. <laughs> hey, I like it. Hey. I'll, take, I'll take I'll take the no. pandering any day. It actually <laughs> it actually is my it actually is my favorite card game. It was actually um I've only played four card games my entire life. Um like seriously. And Ascension and it's and two of its expansions. I don't know how much there is now. I got too busy making video games. Mm-hmm. But like just played the I don't are you allowed to swear? You yeah, to swear I, in podcasts. Uh, you, you can swear on this podcast. It's, okay, it's I'm gonna podcast, just so. only one swear word the entire podcast. I play the shit out of it. Okay, um, and 
like the exhaust deck archetype, I was just like, the purple cards in this engine, like that's like really fun. It like goes once you get like one good from like it's like oh it's like almost perfect deck, and you like just strip one more card out of your deck, and it just goes from like pretty good to like insane. It's like a very good feeling. Yeah. Um, and I I wanted to capture the same feeling, so thank you. Well, and 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 I want to say thank you, and that's part of the fun of this this conversation, really specifically because it's it was you know I'd, I'd read in online articles and other interviews you'd done that we you know, in Ascension had influenced um, you and Anthony in making Slay the Spire, and then Slay the Spire became one of those games that I also became obsessed with. I mean, literally, I don't know how many, you know, definitely hundred plus hours. I I stopped counting. Um, I you know I unlocked everything and played it all through um, on uh, on my uh, PC. And then like I had a couple years had passed, I'd kind of put it aside and then I d- downloaded it again on my iPad while I was traveling and did it all again. Um, and I just loved it. Um, and so, um, so thank you. And it also now moved me to make the next piece of this conversation in a design back and forth. So one to tip my hand a bit, we have, um, soul fusion is the game I did with Richard Garfield, uh, most recently. Ooh. And we did, it's algorithmically generated decks of cards. So they are individually, um, you basically can shuffle any two different decks together to play the game. Mm-hmm. And so that's <laughs> maybe, a physical Maybe table. you do yeah. need to talk to Anthony. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, no, he was I really do. into that for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and so now we have a digital version of that game we, um, that we just um, finished doing a, a Kickstarter for and we're going to be um, putting into, into closed beta soon. Um, and that one... Uh, allows you to not only just take the decks and play them in a classic PvP format, but there's actually a algorithmically generated PvE campaign that is in part inspired by Slay the Spire. Um, so, and so I I have uh, both you know again uh, gratitude and excitement, and also I want to learn from the things that you've learned about creating these algorithmically generated experiences because what I you know what I'm trying to do is take the you know, not just the the fact that you can bring a deck of your choice to the experience. The decks are limitless in that you'll never have no two decks are the same. So you're always going to have new mm-hmm. decks to play, but that you're able to like evolve over time and go through these algorithmically generated experiences. So um, I am curious what you, uh, well, curious about a lot of things, but in general, like what did you learn about when it came to building? It's much harder to build a kind of algorithmically generated encounter than something that you can custom create in many ways in some ways it's easier right you don't have to you don't have as much responsibility for crafting each piece of the puzzle but what did you learn as you went through that process what was the most unexpected thing you know what are the things that you know if you can think of that you maybe would have done differently in terms of how you build that structure and build that arc that is that is a good question um there is there is so much to unpack there uh as as you probably already assumed um Gosh, we would need to start at like some kind of starting point. I guess we would think about what, which, which algorithmic thing we want to specifically talk about. Um, but I would oh, say, in general, yeah. we want things to naturally fall into place. Um, one of the things is like, like how many times do we need to add a card into your deck for a deck builder game until you feel that you have like a good deck. Um, maybe a little bit longer. So you have a little bit of a victory lap or can like polish it up just a little bit more before the final boss for at least Slay the Spire. Um, so that's kind of how we determine like the length of the entire game. Um, and we wanted kind of like ups and downs in terms of like difficulty spikes. So we wanted to do bosses. Um, cause <laughs> 
think we read a blog um, from Derek Yu about Spelunky and his intention about like each area being like harder or easier. And then I was like, this is good. But what if there were bosses? Because <laughs> yeah. everybody loves bosses. At least I think everybody loves bosses. These yeah. kind of like nice thresholds of like how well you've been doing um, these skill checks. So I guess we work backwards from those goals. <laughs> like we talked about earlier, working backwards. Sure. Um, what else? Yeah. Uh, well, so, yeah, so let's, let's talk about, so, so you, you know, you, you, I'll just, I'll just prompt with some specific things. So um, there's the, um, there's this idea of some encounters are easier than others and there's shifting rewards for it. Then you also mm-hmm. have a certain kinds of, you know, how do you just decide, you know, what the different kinds of encounters that you would offer and the different pacings, right? So there's, there's obviously shops and currencies earned, there's monsters to beat, there's question marks and weird things happening. There's, you know, what, what, <laughs> what, what made you decide like the kind of right number of different things or pacings or what did you try that maybe uh, I see, didn't I see. work? Stuff like that. Um, initially, Initially, we had a what's called a. I think we had like a three branch system where um, we didn't really have like a strong map structure. It was just um, when you get to a room after you beat it, you could go left or right. I think maybe in the center as well. There were like three doors, and you would kind of know what's behind the door because there'd be like an icon. Which is now that I think about it, that's kind of what Hades does, doesn't it? But. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, Oh, we ended up going with a map system because uh, I don't quite remember, but I imagine it was because we wanted to do a little bit more planning ahead to make sure that you can do things that are correct for your deck. I think we were both into a game. Well, at least I was really into FTL at the time. Um, And so I would say that if you asked me what inspired the map the most, it would probably be Faster Than Light. Um, We looked at a few other games. We actually designed quite a bit of different rooms before we kind of pared it down to fewer. Um, we just needed the icons to be distinguishable. And I feel like there are cutoffs. If you have too much icons, it gets a little messy and a little unpredictable. Um, so yeah, <laughs> just whatever, I guess what feels right. <laughs> yeah. In terms no, well, of enough I mean, variety. Iterate, iterate on what feels right is, is, is generally the right answer. I mean, I know that people, you know, want, want more than that, but they, but, but it's great to hear like, here's where we started. Here's where the inspiration points. And then as we work through it, it's okay. We are looking to make sure that, and it sounds like, again, you've, you've already emphasized this, but the UI UX is super important, right? It's not just like, what's the coolest mm-hmm. thing I can do. It's what's going to be understandable and accessible to the actual end user. Right. And that's where you pare down. And, and so I, I well, let me know if this is the case for you. Cause I want to shift into the, the process of, of, of launching that game eventually. But the, what I find is we, you know, we have a lot of, it's an interesting case for what we're doing with soul Forge fusion, because we have some very invested players already, right? We have you know players all over the world that play the tabletop game that we're mm-hmm. giving as some of our early access to the, to the, to the digital game and and their feedback is amazing but their feedback is very much from this expert player perspective right they know the game super well they want these kinds of very specific things somebody's played it a bunch and this can actually happen internally as a problem too right like i you internally have tested the game for months or years or whatever and then mm-hmm. your feedback and your instincts maybe get off from what the new player is and what the new player needs how do you correct for that or is it just this is part of just your instinct you're always thinking about the new player um is this something i've tried to stay very very focused on and make sure my team i see yeah that's a <laughs> quite quite a difficult one um our current strategy 
is we have a lot of metrics, and we did have a lot of metrics for Slight Aspire as well. Um, one of the main metrics that we have is that we can filter our metrics based on how many hours somebody's already played. So we actually know who is or isn't a novice um, and how much, and we can take a look at like how often they win or how well they're doing. Um, and we try to adjust for that is what we're going to be doing. And we do bring on new players all the time um, for our current project. But for Slay, it was actually quite a problem. We didn't have, we just didn't have a big pool of people to invite over time. Um, both Anthony and I are not very social. I'm not going to lie. And so we kind of just ran out of people to keep adding to the playtest server. And so right before we released, we gave out a bunch of keys um, to uh, streamers and content creators to be like, maybe we can do something with marketing like this, right? And they all just died a lot in the game. Um, the game was extremely difficult. I would say if we have to compare it to Slate Aspire today, it would probably would be like Ascension 10. Um, wow. We were about to release the game at Ascension 10 from the very start. And we didn't realize it because <laughs> we just played the game so much. We're like, oh, our win chance is like 90%. So clearly, like, it's actually a pretty easy game and maybe it's fine. Um, and it was it was not fine at all. Like nobody was winning whatsoever. <laughs> so so not we like fine. Panic, this is not we fine. Panic nerfed it. We panic nerfed the game. Um, How long was this before before your release? <laughs> like two weeks. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> we just panic nerfed everything. Um and then we got the metrics down, the win rate down from like the win rate used to be like four percent before release, and then it went up to like thirty percent. And we're like, okay, maybe like somebody will beat the game. This is good. Um, and, so. and so this is this is now we're talking about having a um, you you gave the steam uh, the codes to some streamers and people like and so a um, you know how did you select those people and and what you think kept them engaged because I know other people have tried this and you know streamers don't they've mm -hmm. got plenty of things to stream why are they listening to you and b how many kind of of these users did you feel like you needed to be able to make the metrics meaningful for you? That's a good question. We sent the keys out to like 200 people using a service called Keymailer. Um, and I guess there weren't many like card game people or streamers at the time. Um, but we just kind of like shotgun sent them out to people who had played similar genres. Um, Roguelites, uh, Hearthstone, because <laughs> that was the only card game anybody was playing at the time. Yeah. Um so pretty much people who played uh those two games got um a strange email in their inbox if they were part of like the key mailer influencer program. Mm -hmm. Um and our cutoff was just like if you have a thousand followers, you just get the key. And we just kind of just like went through their list and just like bulk selected people who have the most followers and just sent the keys off. Um granted, I think we could have sent much more keys out. I think we were stingy, like only like five hundred people will play the game. I think these people maybe buy the game anyway, <laughs> which was uh, which is completely false, by the way. Um, you should probably, I think, if you are marketing your game, you should send your keys out to like probably at least two thousand. Um, that's how I feel today. But uh, that's what that's how we did it. We didn't we didn't like send like special emails or anything to anybody. Um, I think we reached out personally to a few people mm -hmm. that we were following on like. Hearthstone Twitch streamers or something like that. 
because they just weren't on Keymailer. But otherwise, that's kind of how we did it. Um, and I would say that it didn't work. It didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work very well. So I don't want to. I wouldn't copy what we did. <laughs> okay, we had, a, well, we, had a, so- we had a disastrous launch. Oh, okay. I want to get into the. I want to get into the launch, and I want to get into marketing. Um, but I don't. I want. I don't want to lose the thread of. Um, you talked about metrics, and the one that was very meaningful was, um, you know, win rate. Um, and so there yeah. was. I had. I had a. I had one hanging question around how many people do you need for metrics to matter, right? What was it? What What, what makes meaningful metrics? Oh, to you? And then I'd love to dig a, into what other other metrics that were super that you were like really focused on. I see. Um, how many people for metrics to matter? That's a good question. I would say you have to get lucky a little bit because um, some people play a lot and some folks who just play the game once or twice and never touch it again. So I would say that you probably want at least like five to 10 active players and then your metrics will start to matter. Um, but so great. I think that's the cutoff. It's not that high. Yeah. No, it's not that high. Yeah. I mean, that's that's great to hear. That, you know, you know, when I when I think about metrics, and this is, a, I'm I'm gonna I'll be I'll be honest. Like I don't, you know, I, it's a little, it's still intimidating to me, even having worked with metrics and larger player bases, to make sure that like it, we're getting the right data, that we're interpreting it the right sort of way, that we're actually not, you know, getting let off. Like so, you you know, you mentioned you know being it, or we talked mm-hmm. about both the splitting your 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 alpha players your super invested players from your new players um and then and also i found that there's a trap of like you can find a lot of metrics and just kind of pick and choose between them and then they're not really get anywhere and you can explain them in a lot of different ways right you change a bunch of things all at once um so uh are, were there other metrics that you were primarily focused on or what you know beyond win rate and then were you doing anything else beyond just like okay we're going to look at these we're going to use our instincts to make a decision or were you doing like a b testing like you know and just kind of digging into how metrics informed your design i think is very fascinating mm-hmm. that's a good question um we definitely did not do a b testing which maybe we should have but it's we just didn't have enough play testers i think to do a b testing um other metrics that were very important was card pick rate we'd be like are people always just going for the same archetype? Um, is that because we designed the game in such a way that encourages, you know, just doing the same thing? Are there enough cards? Um, so we have to kind of like read between the lines, I would say. Um, and that was a very important thing. It's almost always reading between the lines. Uh, we pretty much never read the metrics at face value. Um, so yeah. if you have never taken a statistics course, and you just use metrics, then you are probably going to interpret it very, very incorrectly. Um, you might look at the numbers and see what you want to see. That's a very big trap. I think it really helped that Anthony and I would look at the metrics together and we would argue about things. We would be like, this data is just Jake. Like, this is just Jake data. Like, <laughs> Damn it, Jake. Way too much. Like, half the data is Jake. So... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I love it. I love it. Okay, and so and so for people that haven't taken a a statistics course, um, is it is your advice that they they should take a statistics course? Is there are there maybe <laughs> some are there maybe a few principles? Like obviously being aware, we've talked a lot about so being aware of that's your fair. alpha users. I don't I don't want anyone to like go back to school. Like that would be yeah, like yeah. a lot of work. Um, yeah, that's fair. I would just uh, just really try to figure out what the basic fallacies are when it comes to you know um, analyzing metrics. And then um, it should be it should be a little bit more than looking at three Wikipedia articles. It should it should be there should be some videos to look at. Um, I'm not okay. sure 
how education works in 2023, but I get the feeling it's better than when I went to school. Well, so, yeah, there's a ton. There's a ton of resources. I, I love to just sort of give little nuggets here, right? Is there? So we we've 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 we I think we've beaten uh, to death the idea that you know alpha users and uh, and your most invested players are going to can skew your data. Is there anything mm-hmm. else that's like common fallacy or thing that you've learned or one you know one or one or two little nuggets that come to mind of like, hey, when you're looking at your data. We're reading between the lines. Don't take things at face value. Is there anything else <laughs> you're like, oh, this is a trap. This is a common trap. Or this is something I argued with Anthony a ton about. Uh, any, anything I along see. those lines? I would I would always um, have an open question before looking at data. So instead of um, being like, is this new card that we added being chosen, right? Then it's like, but it's also a new card, and all of our playtesters have been playing a while, and they want to test out the new card. Like, it doesn't imply that it's better or worse. Um, if it's hard to learn, you know, maybe if it's hard to fit into an archetype, maybe that means um, it doesn't really mean that the card is picked more or less. The win rate of that card is just, it's just uh, those numbers, they don't line up because of all these strange social factors. And not just because it's inherently good or bad. And it's just, sometimes it's just impossible. Yeah. You just, you yeah, just that's can't a, get that's the data. A great point. Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, there's a lot of things that are really interesting as your player base evolves, right? You mentioned for Ascension, right? You loved the purple cards. You loved banishing things from your deck. New players mm-hmm. hate banishing from their deck. They hate it. They think, <laughs> why would I get rid of cards? I want to get cards, right? And so I actually had to make <laughs> yes. a shift around the balance of the game to actually make some of that the banishing cards worse um over time because the it just meant the best players would just go so far above and beyond the the new player and so i had to make the new players just wanted to kill monsters they just wanted to kill monsters and so they would get some runes cards Mm -hmm. and some power cards and they would just bash things away right and they would get clobbered and so i actually had to shift the balance of my game to make it so that the new players natural instincts were not off but i also wanted to make sure to have those nuggets for the players who love the banishing strategy or love the mechana you know putting all the all the constructs together right you want to you want to have so when i think about it i think like okay there are certain kind of player profiles you know the sort of the classic psychographic profiles or just like in general like okay this is the kind of thing i love to do make sure there's something there for me but that that doesn't exclude the players who are just kind of learning and, and there's this curve of like this card's going to be really good for you when you're starting and you're going to realize it's worse later and this card's going to be this nugget for you to discover later which you're going to think is terrible but really is a gem when you figure it out and i think that that mm-hmm. process of discovery is really important i agree i agree and i think because we're at least for our game, we're very fortunate in that um, you can accidentally get those cards sometimes. And so you kind of deal with what you what you got. And so if you do that, you might accidentally learn things. Um, whereas in different formats of card games, that might not be the case. And I don't know. That's the beauty of deck building for me. So, But I'm obsessed yeah. with roguelites. So you already know I like random stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a, well. I mean, there's 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 a lot of value to that to that randomness and forcing people to work with um, the situation that presents itself. I mean, this is you know again going back to this idea of conversation about what's broken in games, right? I became obsessed with Dominion. I played it a ton, and but the fact that it was a fixed uh, set of cards over time, 
it I it, I got diminishing returns off it because once I would see the layout of the the cards that are available, the difference between main difference between Ascension and Dominion is Dominion you have whatever the sixteen sets of cards that are available, they're static, and you just play the game from that. In Ascension, the cards in the center row are constantly changing, and so you just have to deal with what's available. Right? You you only have these six cards, so you know pick mm-hmm. one or, or or you know, um, and so that was a way for me to say, look, there's a lot more replayability in a game like Ascension for me than there is for Dominion over time. So this was this conversation. Not that Dominion was broken. I loved it. But there was something I wanted to say <laughs> that moved the conversation forward. And so, you know, and, and in many ways, again, like Slay the Spire, I'm approaching it in the same way. I love Slay the Spire. I played hundreds of hours of Slay the Spire. But then once I've unlocked everything and I've built, you know, I've kind of played in the space that's there, I stopped playing. And then, you know, I loved mm-hmm. the game enough. I came back years later, but I kind of, that was, I felt like I'd explored the space. And so I'm now trying to give this next piece of the conversation with Soul Fortuition. It's like, okay, there's literally never, you can never finish, right? There's n- every deck experience is going to be new and brought in and new cards are showing up all the time. You know, um, so it's an interesting thing, creates its own set of problems and own set of challenges. And, you know, but it's a, it's a great way to kind of, again, build on what's come before and, and offer something that, that hopefully will appeal um, to those audiences and bring in the different genres. Um, okay. Well, anyway, this is, this, this part's really fascinating to me. I think I want to talk about, let's, let's shift to marketing um, because the disastrous launch. Oh into, no, my weakness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is great because I, I, I want to share this stuff. Like it's, it's not like, uh, there's, yes. there's this illusion that people like they got it all figured out and you're a huge success and it was a success out of the gates and everybody's just dancing in a pile of money and it's just not that way <laughs> that's not so, that is not yeah it's yeah. we have not figured out anything yeah yeah so so i want to i want to you know and and i appreciate the 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 honesty and the vulnerability because i want to share those those stories of like okay what went wrong what what did you you know what what are the things that you know what was that process like and again you i mean i think you've you guys have really moved the entire industry and genre forward and conversation forward in a way that's really powerful but it's a rocky road to do that and and so so talk me through this disastrous launch and what your strategies were for marketing that didn't work and then kind of why you think it kind of why it kind of did in spite of those failures or 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 lessons learned there that's uh that's a good that's a good point so we our main marketing strategy it's to be honest i think it's still better than a lot of other games that we probably have never seen not whether or not because of marketing is a different um, question, but I would say that we, so Anthony was running the Netrunner site. So there was like a little thread like, oh, like, you know, the owner of this website is like making this game. And that was like a pretty cool thing. And so a lot of folks who were fans of that were like, oh, maybe we'll give it a try. And that's actually how we got a few internal play testers. And then I think we got some wish lists. I don't remember the num- numbers anymore. Um, I don't imagine the numbers were too high. But that was like our main community, I guess, that may have been interested in the game. Uh, On top of that, we tried some physical marketing, as in we went to shows, local events to show off the game. Um, We submitted it to one or two different awards or like not awards, but like contests, I guess might be the right word to see if like we would like win anything. Like what do like what do professional judges think about our game? Um, and they all hated it because, I don't know, card games were not very trendy, I guess, at the time. Uh, I think, I don't think we won a single thing. Like, we didn't win top three on anything, nothing like strategy. Uh, some of these, some of these competitions were like six, six people, like six entrants, and we got like, not even top three. (laughs) 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 So, I guess, uh, uh, if a professional says, 
your game is good or not, then uh, I don't know. Nobody really knows. Um, and I don't, I don't know what I'm talking about. And nobody really knows what's going to be successful. But uh, I do know that today we have an established audience. So we kind of have a free pass for marketing in the future, which is kind of like unfair. And so to be that also means that like my advice is completely worthless now. Like my assumptions of what is, what does or doesn't work is just flawed because I can be like, oh, our next game was successful because we made all these changes. But that's not true. That's not going to be true. It's just Slate Spire was so big that like we're going to get an initial bump for our next game no matter what. Um, so I don't want to be like, I figured it out now. It's just, I just don't have to figure it out. It's just, I just in a very privileged position now. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you earn that position. Right. And, and, and also, I mean, let me just underscore the thing. Nobody knows what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Not, it's not just you. I don't know what I'm doing. Nobody knows what they're doing. Everybody's figuring it out as they go along and the situations change. Like no game release is going to be the same as a previous game release. The, what marketing channels mm-hmm. worked five years ago or 10 years ago, or not necessarily the marketing channels are going to work, mm-hmm. you know, five years from now. Um, when the AI will just pick all of our games for us or whatever. Um, <laughs> but, but, um, but, you know, the idea that um, I do think that, that sharing the stories and giving people um, some paths uh, that, that did work and paths that didn't work does help to inform other people's best guesses in terms of what's going to work next. Right. So, so you true, went true, true. and you went from, I'm submitting to these contests. I'm not winning anything. We're getting clobbered. We're sending out keys to influencers and people, and most of them are not paying any attention to us. So one, mm-hmm. what, this is a, just a good, like what's going on in your head at this point, right? Are you losing faith? Are you, are you Howard? <laughs> what's not? Yeah. What's going on no, there? Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. The keys thing was actually the best thing um, by, by quite a bit. Um, the keys thing. Uh, I think what we, I think we were very ambitious and who we targeted. And I do know that we ended up sending more keys once we realized nobody was streaming the game. Because you can just see on Twitch, you can just look up your own game and be like, is anybody streaming my game? And if the answer is zero, and you want to make a living out of making video games, then maybe you should send out more keys because otherwise your game will be forgotten forever. And that's very sad. And so we just sent out more and more keys like every week hundreds of keys, I think. I think we ended up with like sending out 1,500, 2,000 keys eventually. Um, it would have been nice if we did it all in one go. Um, but eventually when we started hitting smaller streamers, they they were nice enough, I guess, to play our games. And then once you get into a game and you play a lot, that, that quality of a game being very interesting for somebody is like kind of like infectious, I think. And then and the streaming community is quite a tight-knit community, which um, people may not know about because a lot of the popular ones don't really interface with each other. But like strategy game streamers know other strategy game streamers. And they would be like, hey, like I only have like 100 followers or whatever, but like my buddy who's like a bigger streamer, maybe, you know, maybe he or she or et cetera will be excited to play it as well because like, I had a great time, so I'll just suggest it. Um, and that's kind of the chain that happened. It just took a very long time. It took like a month and a half, I believe. Well, a month and a half is not that long. So, so, so what you say oh. is of the things that you tried, um, I mean, it feels very, I'm sure it felt very long as you're like sitting there watching <laughs> like very forever. few years. Ago. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and, and that's these, oh. I, the sharing the struggles of this stuff, right? Like it's, it's that ability to kind of keep your motivation when you're getting negative feedback or even worse, mm-hmm. the negative feedback is no feedback, right? This like, oh my gosh. Not, 
Oh, <laughs> the silence is so painful. It's so painful. And so, you know, that I just, again, people that that's just part of the process. You can't get around it. And, and, and then the, um, uh, this spreading word of mouth, um, it's a, it's an interesting challenge slash opportunity, right? Obviously any marketing that strategy is not going to work if your game is not good enough, right? You've got to have something great that people actually care about, want to play, want to talk about. Um, yours is interesting because you, it was a, it's a single player experience. Um, how do you think about that versus, you know, kind of the, the competitive aspects? I don't know. I don't remember if you launched with like the leaderboards and the fixed runs and everything. Like, what do you think is the key or are there keys that like make a game more recommendable or more streamable than, than others? Or were there any, mm -hmm. did you put any thought into that as you were designing? Yes, we have thought about um, what we call streamability. <laughs> and that was, uh, that was mostly in part because of the Binding of Isaac. When we were watching the game, um, they started showing all the items <laughs> that you had on your screen. And so, and we also, when we were watching those streams, they would constantly ask like the, the people in the chat for other roguelites, they'd be like, what's on your screen? Like, what's happening? And then the streamer would get annoyed and like, not interact with them. Um, but what we felt as like people watching it was that if you have all the information on the screen all the time, then it's like, it's really engaging to backseat. You're like playing the game without playing the game. Um, and we really try to capture that feeling pretty hard. Um, we may have captured it a little too hard because most Slay the Spire streams are like, do not backseat, like do not do that. Um, but now that, now that that culture is more established, I think it's, it's fine, but <laughs> So I guess that's that. Uh, yeah, the yeah, feeling no, that, that you get from kind of playing. Yeah, no, that's great, right? That ability to like, if I were in your seat, what would I do? And being able to kind of learn and play along, it's like you know, it's nice. I mean, it's just the fun I have when I watch Jeopardy or whatever too, right? Like it's just like you oh, know, it's true. <laughs> Jeopardy, my goodness, why aren't there more Jeopardy games? <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, that's new just idea. A game jam game. We can just yeah. we can just crank that out in a few weeks. Anyway. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, um okay great and then and so um and, and so then just to 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 close the the marketing uh loop a little bit so so it was just from there it, and it was literally just this like positive spiral it was uh, you know i heard the the con the contests and physical demoing didn't get much out of it the yeah, key mailing so. and and contacting streamers eventually that kind of spread organically. And then that's what you saw your growth. Was there anything else or any puzzle pieces that were you viewed as part of the part of the equation or that really was kind of the formula? Ooh, I mean, showing off the game in person wasn't good for marketing, but it did give us confidence when our game was kind of in like a ready state, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and then we tried some other marketing. Uh, so I can tell you for sure what will not work which is having a account for your company in social media with less than 300 followers and just having like a countdown or like showing off trailers that have like maybe like 500 views. Uh, that's not gonna, that's not gonna translate to sales. It's, it's very, it's very small. You need to do, you need to do a lot more. Um, so, but yeah, what and did end up working, we just didn't do too much more outside of that. We did keep updating the game just because we were well. We were updating the game every single week for like a year and a half to our internal playtesters, anyway. So we were like, I guess if it doesn't work out, we'll just make the early access period shorter and just call it for this game. 
So we were just updating and people were very receptive to our updates because we worked at a pretty fast and transparent way. Um, we would update weekly and then we just, we'd just be hyper specific about everything that we changed. And it just looked like the game was like an active development because it was, but in a way that was kind of not very known at the time of doing early access right. Because we, <laughs> at least Anthony and I, were not very happy with a lot of early access games uh, at the time. There was a lot of like promises and no updates or updates were very vague or only high level. Um, so we try to be, we try to take a very opposite approach of that and just be hyper transparent. So, yeah, that's great. Okay. I'm glad I asked this question then. Cause I think that's super important and kind of underlooked, right? The process of designing in the open of being responsive to the audience of showing that you're continually working and developing and moving forward. And, and then this, this kind of early access branding, almost this like status of like, the game is not, you know, as we'll dig let's dig into to what is it what does it mean to say that it's okay for early access right you said you got confidence from conventions and being mm-hmm. able to show it to people how do you stage like when am i confident enough to put it at a convention when am i confident enough to put it in early access and when am i confident enough to say not early access anymore real access go i see yes that's a that's a good point there are a few things that i think a game has to reach a certain quality threshold but it's a very fuzzy one and it's really hard to define. Um, there is like performance stability. There is like your Fatui, oh, uh, your first time user experience that has to be really like nailed down. You don't want to, you don't want someone to play the game and not have a way to teach them. And so if you're going to have the game playable for a lot of people, if you don't have that experience like 100% nailed, then they're never going to pick up the game again. Um, and that's because like the first time is just like, it's so important. The first 15 minutes of playing any game is so important. Um, so that has to be like very, very, very good. Uh, the game needs to look visually polished. Um, there's like, <laughs> we kind of, uh, at least I call it like the Apple principle where like we try to hide all the garbage behind like transitions um, and like pretty stuff. It's like, oh, this one's a little ugly. Like, oh, maybe you would just have a way to like not look at this longer or just like even put like nice looking under construction things. Just, just don't show anything that looks amateurish. Like don't even, don't even bother. Um, it's like very, very bad to do that in my opinion. So, is there, so once is there you have all that out of the way, example of that, of you applying the Apple principle um, in, in this or something that people could relate to, because I think this is, this is really valuable, but like what's the difference between showing something that's under construction, but pretty, uh, but that, or versus showing something that's amateur. I see. I see. Um, I put a few. I put a few stick figures for placeholder art in my current uh, alpha. Does that count? <laughs> it's an alpha, so it's fine. <laughs> it's an alpha, so it's fine. But um, but early access a little a little scarier. Uh, what's a good example? Um, when the setting screen is not done, you should not release. You should just not do it. Um, it's like I think it's illegal. <laughs> if there was a law that said your setting screen must, you know must at least be able to adjust the master volume and the graphic settings uh even something as simple as like vsync like if you don't allow those and just release and you just says and you say like settings coming soon or it's just like a box with sliders that don't do anything it's just it's just a really bad really bad vibe um, yeah a title screen that doesn't move is like pretty tough like a static image 
and like buttons that have like no transitions except the text color changes. And it's like, oh, the title screen is not the meat of the game, so we don't need to work on it. It doesn't say under construction. And so players would just assume that this is the quality level you would see throughout the rest of the game. And that's like a really bad first impression. Um, yeah. And impressions are just so important. So, Yeah, great. Yeah, so the, this idea of making sure that you're giving a good impression, there's the right level of polish, um, and then that you're showing constant improvement and development throughout the process if you're out in the open is, is, is in a sense, it's like, you know, we don't think of it as marketing, but it really is, right? It's, it's sending a message out to people that this is a, this is a game that expects a high level of polish and it's a game that is alive and will continue to get better. And so um, people have more willingness to stay with you and believe that you're going to give them a quality total experience in the end. Um, I think that matters a lot. Um, so I'm going to, well, so there's, I want to now talk about, um, let's go past Slay the Spire. Um, let's go to the new process, right? And you mentioned it's like a new, you know, not, not only are you, we talked about it at the beginning. I don't necessarily want to get in too much into the weeds of like, you know, the, the unity stuff. Cause I want this conversations to be a little bit more timeless, but I'm happy to, um, understand mm-hmm. your, you know, re- both what it's like to develop games now and how you think about game jams now and, and testing now that you've got a little bit of an audience. And if you want to talk about this process of rebuilding your engine or how that's flowing and any details about your new project that you want to talk about, I think that I want to give some space for that. I see. Um, I don't really care about talking about the, <laughs> the new engine thing personally. I, un- I understand that, um, the aim is to keep, Kind of like uh, having most of these podcast discussions be like good game design discussions that are applicable or at least, you know, are like a nice snapshot of the era. I think that's very important. Um, So I won't talk about um, Unity, which may not exist in the future. You know, whatever. It's just a relic. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Who knows? But but yeah, I don't know. We're just just a much larger team now. It just used to be Anthony, myself um anthony's wife helps out and a few contractors but we have we have full-time employees which is crazy i had to go through you know we're designing (laughs) like how to make a good business like that's a whole that's a whole thing um we can go pretty deep into the weeds but whether it works or not is is also a really difficult it's okay because i think i think it's great i think it's great to get the process because you know you talked about well okay now i'm in this place where we're successful and so i i don't i can't necessarily give you advice about what it's like if you were starting but now in this other sense you are you're starting right yeah what is it like to and i I think you you phrase this in exactly the way i think about it right i i think about the same thing with my company i design the company the way i design a game right i want there to be a great user experience. I have to understand what the end goals are. I want to have ways to align people and make it, you know, make our, our make things function. How does information move from one player, one one employee to another? I'm like, how do you collaborate? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, whether it's working or not, we don't know, but I'd love to hear how you think about it and what, what you're trying. I see. Um, we, we tried a lot of different things. Uh, as we talked about, we no longer, we were like a very high trust company. We don't really have we don't really track hours. Um, we just kind of, we just have communication hours. And even those are not like 100% mandatory. It's like, if you need to like, if you want to work on the weekend, you can just let me know that you want to work on the weekend. Um, we have just like the normal business stuff. You know, we have days off, etc. We have very, very few meetings. We just have the syncs. And then we have one-on-ones. Um, and then on Mondays, we do something called community manager sync which is where we recently hired a community manager um so we have like a pseudo stand-up where we talk about what we did 
and then maybe talk about what's happening in terms of like the meta of like the company in terms of like what we want to do for like seasonal events and things of that nature. So we're very meeting light in that sense. And uh, what other things can we talk about here? Uh, we do everything on Discord, so that's pretty strange. Um, we're the exact our, same. Oh, not not the, strange for us. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the the style that I enforce or encourage, I don't know if enforce is the right word, that I encourage um, is hyperverbosity. And that's that does not work for a lot of people. Um, because some people need like extreme focus time. Um, but I used to work at Amazon where people were running around and screaming at each other all the time. And so to me, there's, I've never had super focus time. Like I just never, like, I'm always doing two things at once. Like I'm reading feedback right now while I'm talking to you. And that's, and to me, that's fine. And I don't say that that's fine for everybody on our team. Like they need to do stuff without being bothered sometimes so and if they ignore me for a bit i don't mind that's why we have our non-communication hours as well so yeah fascinating yeah i i i i do believe in uh it's really interesting that that wasn't the case at uh, at amazon but yeah i believe in i believe in deep work protected hours uh, and i believe in the importance of significant you know communication and specifically documented communication right so i'm i'm in i mentioned i was in i'm in tokyo right now i have some team that's in europe i have some team that's in you know west coast us mm-hmm. some east coast and so there's a you know the synchronous hours are are precious <laughs> um and and not easy to get everybody on the same page at the same time so getting better at being able to write in discord or in a shared google doc with comments and things to get people to have that feedback to, you know or you know whatever making sure the tickets are managed well i, I found something we've gotten just had to get better and better at uh, over time um and so that the the communication styles can you know sometimes it makes sense to have a live chat live chat and you can resolve it quickly that way sometimes you re- it's better if somebody actually has to write their thoughts out in a full you know format um my understanding is that was a common thing for amazon that that would be you know you you any meetings you'd have to have a you know, pretty written out idea of what you'd want. Is that is that your experience as well, or, or not? That might be that might be false. <laughs> ah, that's just the narrative. Uh, I like it. <laughs> and a, on a high level, like when like a product manager has to pitch to like a director, I assume that happened. But like developers, they they didn't really they didn't really do that. Yeah, <laughs> from what I see, there was an internal wiki. Um, but it was the wild west. Like some some teams did it and some teams didn't. Um, I document a lot. Um, we have several hundred pages of documentation for a current project. I have documentation for games that don't exist. Um, I just can't stop writing documents. I don't know what it is. It's just I'm just always writing. Um, I just I used to blog quite extensively. Um, I used to blog for the university that I was going for is going to excuse me um i blogged a lot when we were working on slate aspire actually didn't blog about slate aspire i actually blogged a lot about um my side projects while working on slate aspire and then i guess it's probably because we had slack and i would just rant all the time about design things to anthony and we would just we'd just be we just get into it you know it's like ah I'm like what do you think about this you know like you're is stupid um but we're we're you know we're close enough that we can like make fun of each other um and we have a very good relationship in terms of design, I think. we For content design, we have a, what I call the author-editor relationship, which is where we think of ideas. And then Anthony thinks of ideas. It's like, oh, why don't we think of 10 abilities or whatever? And he'll think of 10. I'll think of 10. 
And then we just critique the shit out of each other's ideas. And then maybe one thing survives, you know how it is. So it's very healthy. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's great. So this is, this is another thing that I've found um, is really important is this, this idea of healthy conflict, right? The, the ability to give criticism, to receive criticism, and to uh, have your mind changed in ways that don't threaten your ego, or don't, you know, try to be, Mm -hmm. you're not not trying to be right, you're trying to get to the, you know, you're trying to learn and get to the right solution. Um, And, and so that what, is it just something that you just had naturally from the beginning or you had, you guys were such good friends that you, you had enough social cushion. You could just scream at each other and it was fine. Like what, what got you to that's, that place? That's a good point. Um, I don't know. Anthony and I used to discuss philosophy before we started working on games. So we were kind of used to just like critiquing each other all the time. And we still do to this day. Um, we have like a friend server on discord where we just play games and talk about game design and complain about game design. And that's separate from our company one because it's it's so chaotic. I don't even want them. I don't even want to expose them to that. You know. <laughs> uh, oh, but I love it. Oh, all right. I'm really intrigued. Then, if it, I want to get connected to Anthony and, and do do a part two with him and get his perspective on all these things, because it sounds like <laughs> it will be a very uh, interesting uh, other take on the on this founding and uh, and this partnership. What? Oh, uh, yeah, we're 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 quite different. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we do. What would you we say? His some agreements. Yeah, so what would you say his his kind of superpowers are, the, his biggest strengths are? Hmm. I think Anthony's superpower is to intuitively understand what um, strategy game players want to see. And, and he's always on top of, like, the meta of, like, card games, if that makes sense. I think that makes mm. sense. <laughs> always <laughs> playing, like, the newest card games, obsessed with um, strategy games. Yes, and so just you know, any he, he also tends to read a lot more than I do. Um, I can only read after I had my coffee. I think I actually just I didn't actually realize that I could read. That's a weird thing to say, but I actually just could not read um, because I would just lose focus all the time. Uh, now I drink coffee constantly, so I'm like a normal person. But because of that, I like started reading when I was like 25. But Anthony, he's always just reading stuff, um, blogs about opinions card game stuff analyses posts um and that's just i think that's his happy place it's yeah. just always like knowing what people think about things what kind of cards they want to see what why they like certain things we also just review and read steam reviews all the time we like look at a new game and be like what do people actually think about this and then we would like read it and like try to be probably be wary of like confirmation bias but we would yeah. play it and be like i think like there's just not enough meat after you play the game once or twice and then we just read like every single Steam review, and then maybe that's the case. But I think he reads uh, a little bit more than I do. Um, I tend to just play a lot of like brain dead games all the time. Um, so we're different in that way. Yeah. So. And and so when I uh, ask the same question to him, uh, what will he say your superpowers are? It's probably UX related. I think everybody <laughs> everybody is pretty sensitive to a lot of my UX decisions. And I think people tend to bring up that uh, I have a good sense for UI and UX quite often. Yeah. Um, so I yeah, guess that's what great. stands out. No, it's a great, <laughs> it's a great power. It makes it, it's, it's, a, it's such a challenging thing. And I'm glad we, we dug into it quite a bit um, earlier in the conversation because it's like, it's so challenging and nuanced and, and overlooked and many a great game has become 
has never, you know, has died because of bad UI UX. And, and, it, and it informs yeah. everything all the way through, right? That from the, the design and certain principles and systems that you need to cut or remove because they are, you can't build good UI UX for them or they're, they're too cumbersome. And through to marketing where you can have something that anybody can backseat, you know, drive and see all the information on a screen and that allow, makes it more streamable, you know, so, so there's, there's, it, it informs every piece of the puzzle in ways that I think people don't tend to appreciate. So I really, I appreciate you uh, diving, diving deep into it for us. Yeah, I would say there's a lot of good physical board game designers. Um, and generally the biggest weakness is taking that like traditional physical format to digital is UI and UX. It generally, it generally tends to be like a copy of the physical form into digital form. Um, and the assumption is that I really just want to sell the physical game in digital form and it's going to work out exactly the same. Um, and that is a, that is a very naive thing that I've noticed in some games. So I hope sometimes I wish people would reach out and allow me to help them, but also that's a weird ask. So, (laughs) but also unsolicited feedback is not welcome. So (laughs) it's a a tough, (laughs) tough thing. I I always want to help people. Yeah. But, uh, well, I I will be yes. happy to accept your help uh, if you want uh, to offer me uh, on my uh, terrible UI UX because uh, we have uh, we have our alpha ready to go, um, and it is got a lot of <laughs> issues I already know about. So, um, uh, okay. So, are there people that um, uh, we're running out of time here? So, I want to give people the opportunity. Um, where can they find you, your stuff, your writing, your new game, cool thing they want to join in on? What <laughs> what should I direct people to? Whatever uh, marketing I can I can help drive your way. We only, all of our news goes through our mega crit Twitter channel right now. Um, so if that disappears in a few years, that's too bad. Um, <laughs> I don't really want to be found, but I do exist at caseyano.com. That's just where I blog stuff. Um, you know, I'm on Twitter too, and I link to it whenever I do. But I actually post mundane things on purpose. So I don't really recommend following it at all. It's, I just I just exist to make that platform a little more boring because I think all the news is negative and I'd rather see boring things about people that I respect than whatever is out there all the time. So, well, I, uh, I think that, uh, this conversation was anything but boring for me. I'm sure a lot of the audience will love it. Um, I have an enormous amount of respect for you and what you guys have done. So, uh, I will just say, uh, thank you here. And I look forward, uh, to, uh, not just part two with Anthony, but uh, learning more about the new stuff you're working on because it's really helped. Uh, you've given me many, many, many hours of of fun. So I thank you for all of it. Yeah, and thank you for Ascension. Really, like, just helped me design so much content. No joke. Um, and now that I know you work on Soulforge, I got to give it a try. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. All right, all right then, we'll be playing some games. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please rate, comment, and share on your favorite podcast platforms, such as iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever device you're listening on. Listener reviews and shares make a huge difference and help us grow this community and will allow me to bring more amazing guests and insights to you. I've taken the insights from these interviews, along with my 20 years of experience in the game industry, and compressed it all into a book with the same title as this podcast, Think Like a Game Designer. In it, I give step-by-step instructions on how to apply the lessons from these great designers and bring your own games to life. If you think you might be interested, you can check out the book at thinklikeagamedesigner.com or wherever fine books are sold.